ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Whether you love fashion or hate it or think it's frivolous or don't really care either way, it is undoubtedly a part of your life. And that is not a revolutionary thought by any means. It's basically the gist of Meryl Streep's iconic speech in The Devil Wears Prada about the colour cerulean. But the question I'm interested in is, why do clothes hold such sway over our psyches? Because there is so much conflicted thinking around fashion. Like, we use clothes to project our individualism, but we're also compelled to follow trends and what celebrities are wearing. Fashion can make us feel great, but it can also make us feel crap. Fashion actually does include head to toe, and that forms our appearance, which other people form judgments about us in a very, very short time, in under a second. But I do think there's something about human beings' self-recognition, where you want to have this kind of cohesive image of yourself, that it's very comforting to think of yourself as a kind of, I don't know, properly presented individual. And that must relate back to these early experiences where we're born so kind of flailing and messy and have no control over our bodies. And so if there's this kind of changing system of outfits that kind of pull you together, you think, well, okay, I'm going to put that on and I'm going to feel put together. I'm going to function. But that changing system of outfits is also unsustainable. Fashion has a huge impact on the environment. So what will it take to break our fast fashion habit? It's a really, really difficult one because it is such a pleasure. Clothes are such a pleasure. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, the power, the promise, and sometimes the poison of fashion. There is clothing, and then there's fashion. And the two are obviously related, but one is a much more recent concept. So I suppose fashion, it depends on your definition of fashion, whether you think it's kind of always existed. It's sort of fundamental human phenomenon because humans love to copy each other. This is Anushka Gross. She's a psychoanalyst and author of Fashion, a Manifesto. Or whether you think it's something that kind of comes out of the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolutions and this idea that um, aristocrats were very, you know, sort of extravagantly dressed, especially in the the French courts. They were kind of crazy for dressing up Um, and then other people would copy them and they didn't want to be copied. They really wanted to distinguish themselves from the kind of bourgeoisie. So um, they invented sumptuary laws to stop people wearing the same clothes, but they just didn't work at all. You know, people would copy them just slightly different enough not to get arrested or whatever. And so um, the better idea was to just change their clothes radically so you could still tell who was who. But then obviously the other people would catch up pretty quickly. So this thing of change, copy, change, copy, set the system in motion. Well, that's the kind of myth. Anushka says things have kind of stayed the same ever since. Yeah, things haven't changed that much because you still, whether it's a, you know, whatever, King Louis XIV or an influencer on Instagram or whatever, you've got the sort of the people who lead it and the people who follow it. And this desire to copy people with more power and status, whether it's a celebrity or influencer or Louis XIV, it might make you cringe or wish it wasn't so, but it's a pretty fundamental human behaviour. 
I mean, when you're born, basically, you know, a baby is copying what it sees from powerful people. (laughs) It's a continuation of a really fundamental human behavior. It's sort of how you learn to be human is by copying the powerful people around you. So that, that seems to be sort of hard coded in a way. That's a difficult thing to give up. And so whoever it is, kings, queens, movie stars, models take over as as these kind of sublime figures that we look up to and who, who teach us how to be, whatever it is, how to be cool. But in the last few decades, the way cool is born and defined has changed. Street style now has a huge influence on high fashion, and social media has made the ecosystem for what is cool even more complex. Especially because it's not everybody wants to wear new clothes, so you might wear your old thing and you might be a great influencer. But then there are these kind of funny stories of, of people buying a little vintage top and putting it on their Depop, and then suddenly it's been copied by you know Shein and all <laughs> fashion companies all over the world, and it's being sold everywhere. But um, so so fashion can start differently now. But I guess in the rhythm of seasonal, you know, autumn, winter, spring, summer shows every year, that that's thought to have had its roots in this kind of post-revolutionary industrial rhythm. If the names Depop and Shein mean nothing to you, Depop is a platform where people can resell their clothes, and Shein is an online fast fashion giant. And so part of the problem with this whole new system is that trend cycles have become turbocharged. I think the idea of a single trend has gone. Mm. What we're seeing now is a trend-free or multiple-trend society. This is Dr. Carolyn Mayer. She's a cognitive psychologist, a fashion business consultant, and author of The Psychology of Fashion. She's worked with brands like Selfridges, H&M Group, TK Maxx, and more. And one of the reasons for this is the speed of trends coming and going. It would be impossible, really, for people to keep up with what's fashionable on a regular basis. So they they come, you know, the the high street stores are changing their assortment in under two weeks, some even faster than that. And if you if you look online, there are multiple trends at the moment is sparkly and shiny, but also transparent. There's leather, there's lace, there's satin. Yeah, and there's everything. Is everything a trend apart from like skinny jeans kind of <laughs> is what it feels like right now? Yeah, I mean, it used to be in the 70s, if you weren't wearing flares, you were absolutely out of it. You are not fashionable. But now any any type of jeans goes, any colour, any shape, any length, any cut. So baggy, tight, flared, any dye even with jeans. So You know, people wear what they like that aligns them with a particular group. So I think this is more important now than what's trendy. What is the group wearing? What is your social group wearing? And what we wear aligns us with that group and disassociates us from other groups. Mm. I wonder if this is at all sort of a reflection of the times we're in, even just politically in terms of becoming more polarized and people retreating to their subgroups and sort of forming uh, these like bubbles online. Because in one sense with fashion on TikTok and, and social media, you have all sorts of micro trends that like really speak to a particular niche audience or don't maybe don't last very long. I'm thinking of things like 
you know, dark academia or light academia right now or the Visco Girls look of like several years ago now, which these are very tiny micro um, movements, but they had very strong followings. Uh, is is Do you find that that's related at all in terms of how we're moving as society in terms of our beliefs, in terms of our opinions? Do you see any sort of links between those two things? Yes, absolutely. I think one thing that the pandemic did universally was to give people the opportunity to reflect on their priorities. And lots of people changed their priorities as a result of the pandemic, finding more meaning in community, in social aspects, in belonging, this sense of belonging. And I absolutely believe that these micro trends, these small groups are a result of that. Wanting to belong to a group that we can find meaning in, that we find alignment with. We're belonging to like-minded people. Then what we wear can show that outside this small group. It disassociates us from other groups. So clothes, apart from being fun and that kind of thing, they're also about belonging and identity. Absolutely. Absolutely. So even 150 years ago, who we call the founding father of psychology, William James, he spoke about our identity and he spoke about the components of our identity as being our homes, our belongings, our clothing. These form part of our identity. And we see this so often. We make judgments in under a second about people based on their appearance. And clothing is an enormous part of that. So absolutely, what we wear is a, is a crucial part of our identity. And it's a way that we express our identity to other people. I want to come back to the fun element, because related to this idea of expressing identity and belonging is the fact that clothes can make us feel really good, even great. Like, think about how you might feel when you put on a sharp suit, or a sparkly dress, or a favourite pair of jeans. Why does a garment have this effect? So when we wear something, when it's next to our skin, it becomes part of who we are. It becomes our second skin. And we learn through reward and punishment. So when we're wearing something, if we get good interactions with other people, we feel good about ourselves. Mm. And we can really this to the piece of clothing. So when we come across that piece of clothing in our wardrobe and we put it on again, the memories, you know, kick back in and we can feel good about ourselves. We feel that we look good. So if we feel we look good, then we do look good because mm -hmm. we present this positive aspect to other people. We stand differently. We're more open in our interactions. We might use more hand gestures and we probably smile more. All those are engaging um, and enable us to get meaningful results. So, you know, the mood that we feel when we put something on isn't just for us to stand in the mirror and look at ourselves and feel good. Mm -hmm. the, the purpose of that and the true meaning of that is to get better interactions with other people. And because we've experienced in the past, this forms a memory that is triggered and becomes part of our repertoire that we can pull out and help us have more positive experiences in our next interactions. 
wearing something that makes you feel amazing is, is one thing. But then on days when perhaps um, you're not feeling so great, at least I do this anyways, if I'm not feeling so great, but I want to feel better, one thing I'll try and do is to trick myself to feel better is by putting on something really nice and, and doing my makeup as though I felt amazing. And, and I, the hope is that'll make me feel a lot better about going about my day. Can you explain the psychological processes going on there? Because often that does work to a degree. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, And I really like the way you say you put on your makeup, because I think that's super important, (laughs) that when we don't feel great, just the time we're spending for self-care. And I believe, you know, just putting moisturizer on or cleaning our faces, feeling we look better can definitely help our mood. And then putting on some clothing that we feel good in. We feel good and it's, it's really internal. Clothes don't just have the power to make us feel better, they might also have the power to make us think differently. And there's a term to describe that, it's enclosed cognition. So enclosed cognition came about through a study in 2012. Psychologists, cognitive psychologists, asked people to either wear or look at a a piece of clothing, which was a white lab coat. The researchers told half the participants that the coat belonged to a doctor and the other half that it belonged to a painter. And then they gave a series of attention tasks. In every single attention task, those participants who believed that they were either looking at or wearing the doctor's coat Mm. outperformed participants who believed they were wearing or looking at the painter's coat, but they were identical, just a white lab coat. Um, But the aspect they looked at was attention. So attention is a cognitive process. It's one of the first basic processes that our brain does in order for us to make sense of the world. Mm. So attention is the filter for all the information that comes in from the environment. Right. So we pay attention to elements that are salient. So are they bright? Are they shiny? Are they moving in particular? Do they have a story, a resonance? So these aspects of attention make something important enough for us to process it in our brain. So when the study participants were told the story that the white coat was a doctor's coat or a painter's coat, their ideas of what a doctor or painter is like influenced their behaviour. They believed that doctors pay greater attention to details. So these people were more motivated to find that there was a spot the difference attention task, for example. Right. They were more motivated, more expecting to find those results, and they found them faster than those who believed they were wearing the painter's coat. So it's about attention. And Carolyn says attention is involved in all of our cognitive processes, which is what makes this finding pretty interesting. From memory, from short-term memory, to communication, to planning, to problem-solving. So it's a super important element of our brains. But it does need to be noted that this was a smallish study and a later replication of the study didn't find an effect on attention. So it's an interesting theory, but more research is needed to prove it. So they argue, the researchers, that we have to wear the item of clothing and believe the story about it Mm -hmm. for it to significantly impact our attention. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, the psychology of fashion. So clothes can make us feel good. They might influence how we think. 
And then there's the special allure of a new piece of clothing. Yeah, I suppose there is there's something sort of transformative about the new dress, or that's how it seemed that, you know, like the idea of Cinderella walking into the ball and everyone gasping kind of thing. It's almost like, well, you have to have a new dress to to get that result, that it has to be something that's never been seen before. And that will have this kind of, I don't know, amazement power or something. And so if you'd worn it three times, nobody's going to gasp or something like that, which I think is wrong. There's you know there have got to be new ways to wear things but maybe giving up the sort of narcissistic buzz of of thinking that you've got to make people gasp every time you go out the house is probably um, a good way forward. The problem is our brains are kind of wired to get bored of the familiar. So just the newness of clothes gives us this kind of psychological boost because we habituate to what we've got. And this is the same with anything really and I always use the example of you taste a piece of chocolate And it's wonderful, the first piece. After the seventh piece, it's not so delightful. And it's the same with clothing. The excitement we feel when we buy something new doesn't last. And it actually dissipates quite quickly. And then we're driven to find that excitement again with something else new. The the question of addiction is really complicated, I think, and I hope this answer isn't too sort of, I don't know, tangled. But I do think there's something about human beings' self-recognition where you want to have this kind of cohesive image of yourself. And that must relate back to these early experiences where we're born so kind of flailing and messy and terrible. And gradually we learn how to, you know, use our hands to move, to, to pull ourselves together. But I think it's really difficult for all of us, most of us, to to keep a kind of sense of that, that that actually being human feels very messy. And so if there's this kind of changing system of outfits that you can identify with that kind of pull you together, like if you've got the latest thing and you know it looks good, you've seen it look good, it looks great on whoever, you know, I don't know, Kylie Jenner. And so you think, well, okay, I'm going to put that on and I'm going to feel put together. Beyond that existential explanation, psychoanalyst and author Anushka Gross reckons there are four forces keeping us tied to fashion. Competition, desire, production, and paranoia. I suppose I had the idea that with fashion, it can't can't just be one thing. Like this idea of wealth display kind of explaining everything, it just doesn't really do it because it seems that it really goes to work on us. It sort of lodges deep in our psyches and forces us to, you know, buy things, to spend too much money, to get things we can't afford. It's quite compulsive and addictive. And so there must be lots of different things at work on us. And so, you know, there'd be things that would keep the system going, like the means of production. So there are all these fantastic technologies for producing new clothes. Then you have to generate the desire for the new clothes. So there are all these, whatever it is, you know, looking aristocrats to looking at Instagram, but these things that are going to sort of cause you to want stuff. But also I thought paranoia was the one that was very... It would sort of weave itself between. So you've got, you know, you've got technology, you've got media, but you've also got this human anxiety about who you are for other people and trying to manage that and trying to be the right person for other people. So other people think well of you, but always doubting it. And I guess with fashion, there's a lot of self-doubt and and self-doubt is definitely something that can make you go out and shop. You think you'll get it right. You'll look good. Other people will, you know, think well of you and, and that will be covered, but it's really hard to keep 
that going and maybe buying new clothes is the sort of constant promise of <laughs> like being the right person. And that plays right into the competition angle. That's one of the kind of classic motors for fashion. That's the one that you read in all the kind of fashion histories or books of fashion, that, that that's the kind of fundamental principle that you want to either keep up with other people, be slightly ahead of other people, that you really, really want to show that you are, are sort of well-placed in the social hierarchy. That's um, in a way, going back to the French court, it's all about that. That's the sort of original thing, but it's just much more complex than that now because of the systems that have clustered up and grown up around it. Given all of that, it's not surprising that clothes and fashion have the power to make us feel pretty crappy about ourselves. And that's been the case through the centuries. Fashion's traditionally been harmful, especially to women, in that, well, there's a double-edged thing, because there was this moment in the end of the 18th century when men suddenly became very, very sensible dressers. This is in kind of industrial societies, because the idea was that you just had to show you were not a kind of horrible royal person, that you, you were a worker, you were useful to society, you were kind of getting things done for the good of everyone. And so the way to signal that was by wearing kind of sensible clothes that were the same as other men. So women had to take the rap of wearing the kind of frivolous stuff. And so it made women sort of kept them in this role of sort of decorative, silly people um, and also that you know made them uncomfortable so it was totally fine to be cinched in to have high pinchy shoes even to have huge decolletage and be really cold in the winter or to have massive kind of ballooning skirts and be really hot in the summer there was no concession to comfort it was all about display and so fashion was seen to be very harmful to women, both physically, I mean, it could really disrupt your organs, but also socially, that it kept you in a role that was um, not really conducive to, to being a kind of active agent in society. It meant that you were excluded from all that. So I think that the legacy of fashion is the legacy of that kind of harm. These days, how fashion is marketed can also make us feel pretty awful. It hasn't always been all that diverse or inclusive, although fashion business consultant and psychologist Carolyn Mayer says that's changing. Fashion has become more inclusive over the past decade. So we see, you know, real inclusivity in terms of skin tone, some inclusivity in terms of body size, but still very little inclusivity in terms of abilities. So very little disability inclusion. And there is such a, a missing element in here that fashion brands are not engaging with. So apart from the financial aspect of engaging with a disabled community, and there are 13 million people in the world who have a disability, not all are visible, who would benefit from having clothing that is designed in an inclusive way. It doesn't have to be special clothing, but designed in a way that's inclusive that would be better designed for everyone. But the biggest problem with fashion these days is probably the impact it has on the environment. Research from the Australian Fashion Council suggests Australians buy 56 new items of clothing a year making Australia one of the highest consumers of textiles per capita in the world. And a lot of that is fast fashion, clothes that are cheap and trendy, and therefore not made to last. 
The industry is one of the biggest polluters in the world. It's more polluting than the travel industry. It's really um, harms the people who make the clothes famously, you know, these terrible factories with no rights for workers that pollute rivers, that, you know, buy crops, that, that use land that could be used for food. It's just, it's absolutely extraordinary how much harm the fashion industry does. The, these awful things like uh, the big fashion chains uh, sending clothes to landfill or burning them rather than letting them be sold or given away to, to countries so they don't have to keep producing more. Just the amount of waste and damage and, and you know, pain caused to human beings is extraordinary. It's, it's unbelievable that, that we agree to buy into that. But we do. And it's because of this potent mix of our internal psychological processes, our competitiveness, our desire to belong, our love of new things, combined with the marketing prowess of fashion companies. So how do we break free of our habit of constantly buying new things when there are all these forces at play? I ask this as much for myself as anyone else, because let me tell you, my Instagram algorithm has me nailed. Like it knows my exact style preferences, my style aspirations, and it is a constant battle not to buy. It's a really, really difficult one because it is such a pleasure. Clothes are such a pleasure. And I don't think, I mean, there were these funny predictions in the early 20th century that people would just give up clothes altogether because even, you know, the wearing of clothes was a bit neurotic and silly. And actually, if we're proper, rational human beings, we should all go naked. And that hasn't happened so far. So I think people are going to keep wearing clothes. And if they keep wearing clothes, they're going to keep wanting to kind of play with clothes. But, um, but this huge kind of fast fashion thing where we buy stuff and even having this verb re-wearing is so outrageous as if there's a kind of special thing for wearing your clothes more than once. I think so people need to wear their clothes much more than they do, replace them much less than they do. I also think that wearing vintage clothes is a really good thing if you can think of how to wear vintage clothes futuristically. So you're thinking of kind of new ways to wear them. I love punk and the whole business of, you know, wearing your clothes inside out and upside down and the wrong way around and dyeing them and cutting them and just doing stuff, very active stuff with clothes that already exist, I think is probably the best way forward. But but also because the whole, if the whole system is to do with wealth display, basically, those are the kind of the roots of it is to show that you've got the you know financial power to access new stuff. And that's what makes you feel good. So it's not just that you look good, but you're sending out the signal that you've got the means to access goods. And that's the thing that probably has to stop or change. Although, you know, buying great stuff in the op shop is actually pretty cool. That's you're still accessing goods just in a less harmful way. So we need to rethink our relationship with fashion. That much is clear. But if you're still inclined to think that fashion doesn't matter or it's stupid, well, you wouldn't be the only one, but it does matter. And you kind of need to understand its importance and influence to tackle its more harmful sides. I'm always fascinated by people who say then they don't care about fashion. Those are the people I, I really love engaging with. And when I say, well, your clothes didn't just fall on you this morning, you know, you chose something for a reason. 
in a way, that's been the heart of all these theorists who were writing about fashion throughout the whole of the 20th century. They kind of, because um, it's sort of agreed that fashion is really silly, it's frivolous, it's for stupid people, it's not really a thing, you know, like art is much better. <laughs> but still, everyone's interested in fashion, so why? But um, it seems that it shows something about how people organise themselves socially, like, and the fashion's very peculiar. It's got these different forces. So in one way, it's very hierarchical. You can tell who's who. In another way, it's really anti-hierarchical, like anyone can do it. Like if you can copy it, you can trick it, you can do it. Kind of, you know, it's something it's like about being the same as other people, but then it's about distinguishing yourself from other people. It's very, very complex, but it's maybe a kind of microcosm or a mirror or something that shows you something about how society works. And in a way, it's quite anarchic. It's sort of different to other systems of of kind of human organisation. It's different to the way people might organise themselves in a business or the way a government might run a country you know the fashion industry is definitely not a government and the way we relate to it is not like we relate to law so so it's like this other system that exists inside our societies that is Anushka Gross she's a psychoanalyst and writer based in London and author of Fashion a Manifesto And you also heard from Dr. Carolyn Mayer. She's a fashion business consultant, a cognitive psychologist, and author of The Psychology of Fashion. And that's it for All in the Mind this week. Thanks to producer Rose Kerr and sound engineer Beth Stewart. I'm Sana Kadar. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.